What do you get when you mix someone who loves true crime and horror movies with someone who's afraid of their own shadow? Someone like you? Yeah. I'm glad you asked. You get the perfect podcast. We're Carmen and Joanna of Live, Laugh, Murder podcast. We're not your typical true crime show. Here at Live, Laugh, Murder, we tell stories that might be true crime or they might be the plot of a horror film. Can you tell the difference? Don't worry though, because all is revealed by the end. We are true crime sometimes. So check us out. We release bi-weekly on Saturdays. And remember to live, laugh, but never what, Joanna? Murder. Never murder. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is a true crime investigative podcast. We discuss cases regarding the assault, murder, sexual assault, or cases involving the abuse or abduction of adults or children. These topics can be very disturbing and a trigger to many individuals. So please listen accordingly. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, help is available. You can text, call, or chat 988. This is available 24-7. It is also available in multiple languages for anyone who needs mental health related or suicide crisis support. It can connect you with trained crisis counselors. Also, if you are in Wichita, there is a local crisis center. Call 316-660-7500. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker, and today I want to talk to you about the case of Zeta Camille Arfman. Now, she was known by a lot of different names, Zeta, Camille, Camilla, Aunt Millie. She was versatile and lovely, and this case is difficult for a lot of reasons. It's difficult because a beautiful young woman's life was taken away before she had a chance to truly experience the world. It's difficult because a family totally turns on another family member and destroys his life. And... I'm still trying to wrap my head around, you know, we see a lot of times where a perpetrator will do anything to protect themselves. We've seen bad people do bad things. That's what is true, crimers. We understand that. We listen to podcasts to try to help solve cases, but also to try to understand why these people do these things. But in this case, it's not just the perpetrator who does this. It's his parents. I want to start this case talking about the victim. Because when this case is out there, and you'll hear about it a lot, the victim gets lost. Her name, her identity... It even gets omitted from some articles. These articles have been written from 1999 to 2022. And there instead have been discussions of police corruption, mishandling of evidence, false testimonies, 
and again, families turning on one another. Our own Attorney General, Derek Schmidt. There's talks about him trying to hide behind the shield of the law in this case. Talks about a man wrongfully imprisoned for over 16 years. However, I want to talk about the victim. The person who lost their life throughout all of this. And her name was Zeta Camille Arfman. She was born March 4th. 1985, in Winchester, Kansas. That's located in Jefferson County. And this is how her memorial read. Camille, or Camilla, or Aunt Millie, was a lovely, beautiful girl. She had milky white skin and lovely, thick, long hair. She was a good girl. She went to church and she obeyed her parents. She was having some trouble at Jeff West School, so she transferred to Oskaloosa High School, where she was doing very well. She loved animals, and she was very gentle. She was a real sweetheart. You are missed, Camille. Now on Friday, November 5th, 1999, 14-year-old Camille stepped off the school bus around 4.20 p.m. She walked inside her trailer home in Oskaloosa, Kansas, where she lived with her older sister Heidi and Heidi's husband at the time, 23-year-old Floyd Bledsoe. The couple had two young boys. Now, the 14-year-old Camille initially had struggled with school, but she's now an honor student at Oskaloosa High School after she moved in with Heidi and Heidi's husband, Floyd. You saw an improvement with her. She also became a devout Baptist, attending every service at nearby Countryside Baptist Church. She was warm and friendly, and Camille seemingly moved past all of the earlier disagreements she had with her mother because she had found stability in the home of Heidi and Floyd. Now at 4.20 p.m., Dorothy McClung, had, she was a school bus driver. She had parked the school bus outside the Bledsoe's home. Now the home is surrounded by a lot of trees, and but she could see it a little bit on the vantage point. She said normally she could see Camille's mother awaiting for her arrival at the trailer, but on that day, Dorothy did not see Camille's mom. Around 4.30, 4.35, Robin Meyer, she left her job at TLC daycare in the neighboring town of Winchester and began to drive to the Bledsoe's trailer. Meyer had grown up with Camille, and the two of them were close friends. They would hang out at the, tra at the trailer after Camille returned from school. When Robin Meyer arrives at the trailer around 5 p.m., all the lights are off. Camille's school bag, however, and coat were still at the trailer. That indicated that she had arrived at the trailer and dropped them off before she had left. Now, Robin assumes Camille's mother, 
whom Camille usually spent the weekends with, had picked her up. Remember, just 40 minutes ago, the bus had been there and pulled away. But the bus driver did not remember seeing Camille's mother. Now, around 5.30 p.m. in the nearby area, U.S. Army Colonel William Noble was sitting in a deer stand near Zool Dairy, clad in camouflage, holding his bow. As he was sitting there waiting to hunt some deer, he hears screaming and hears some words to the effect of, please don't hurt me. He could tell that the words were coming from some sort of fight or something like that, and the words continued, please don't hurt me. So he gets out of the deer stand and he begins walking towards the screams. He's moving through the trees and over a creek, but suddenly he's stopped in his tracks by two large dogs. Now, he does have his twenty-two pistol, but come on, they're dogs. He really doesn't want to hurt them, but he can't go any further. These dogs are not allowing him to advance. Trying to decide what to do, he decides to climb a tree and see if he can see anything or decide what's going on. He gets up that tree and doesn't do anything else. He waits for the dogs to move on and just goes back to his deer stand. And he regrets that. He regrets not moving towards those screams when he finds out what happens later. Now, at around 7.02 p.m., a call comes in to the sheriff's department. The caller tells a deputy that they hear a woman screaming on Wild Horse Road. Now, Wild Horse Road isn't near the area that Zool has heard the screaming. So we're hearing conflicting reports. Camille fails to attend a church social that night, and the members begin searching for her, and they ultimately call the police. Family is out handing out flyers, and on Saturday, November 6th, her disappearance is discussed at a family church. This is a Baptist church, so they bring everyone together, and they're discussing her being missing. Now, at 11 p.m., Heidi Bledsoe, she leaves work in Lawrence, and she goes home, arriving about 11.40 p.m. According to the co-worker who drove her, Scott Harries, before long, the whole Bledsoe home is bustling with activity. Floyd arrives just a few minutes after Heidi. He's followed by um, Camille's mom and her son, Dale, and Dale's fiance. And they're all bustling. They Heidi files a missing persons report with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. And this is going on about 1 a.m. About that time, Floyd hits the road, traveling to Ottawa and Pomona, and they're running in all these areas trying to find Camille. So remember, all of this is going on. But at about in the middle of the night, the church's pastor receives a telephone message on his answering machine from Tom Bledsoe, Floyd's brother. Now, the pastor's name is James Bollinger, and he's more than just a church pastor to Tom. I mean, he is a close friend. He's like, okay, so he gets this message from Floyd's brother, and this message is not what he was expecting from Tom at all. 
Now, Tom has always been a, a little awkward and keeps to himself, and he's been really hard of hearing, which is really important to keep in mind. Tom is extremely hard of hearing because he had a fungus to his eardrums and it ate away most of his eardrums. Now, Tom didn't drink or hang out with women, and even at the age of 25, he lives an extremely devout lifestyle. The message that James gets is Tom stating, I know where Camille is. When you get this message, I turned myself into the police department. You don't know the grief that I went through as I sat there thinking, I wish I never did it. I will pay for the rest of my life for what I've done. Tom then turns around and calls his parents. His father, though, his father is like, oh, hold on, wait a minute. So Tom turns around and calls Bollinger again, and he leaves another message, and he states, all I can ask is forgiveness for what I've done. I will pay for the rest of my life for what I've done. So Bollinger is going, okay, he says he knows where this young girl is, and he's asking for forgiveness. What the hell is going on? So Tom calls his pastor. He confesses. Tom tells his dad what happens. He confesses. He says he's going to the police. And he says he knows where Camille is. He knows what happened. He's the one that did it. You would think, okay, case closed. You have the person confessing. And you have everything tied up. End of story. It's a tragic tale. But at least you know who did it. And they're going to go to jail. And justice will be served, right? Not even a bit. This case goes off the rails. Then as at this time, Tom turns himself into the police. And through his attorney, Tom turns over the murder weapon, which it's confirmed by ballistics that it is the murder weapon. And it's a nine millimeter handgun he had purchased two weeks earlier. The attorney also turns over bullets that Tom purchased shortly before Camille disappeared. At the time, Tom tells police, I did it. I killed her. Tom tells the police where to find Camille's body. She was burned in a trash dump on the farm where Tom lives with his parents. She had been shot four times and her top and bra have been pushed up under her arms. An examination of the area showed she had been dragged to the burial site. Now, after he was jailed, Tom's story starts to evolve. And he says, well, I didn't kill her. Floyd actually committed the crime. He tells me that he, he says that Floyd told me that on Saturday on the side of the road, when Floyd and Tom were passing out missing person flyers, while Floyd is in the car, Tom is standing outside of the car. Tom, who is hard of hearing. Tom tells police that Floyd described the killing and told Tom where to find the body. So all of this ruckus is going on to find her, but Tom is saying Floyd outlined everything. 
Tom then says that Floyd then coerced him into taking the blame by threatening to expose Tom for having attempted to have sex with a dog and masturbating while watching pornography. This is what Tom says. With this information and this information only, police release Tom because, well, of course, Tom can't be lying. Even though all of the evidence points to Tom, they arrest Floyd for first-degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated indecent liberties with a child. Floyd is, his entire life is turned upside down on that and that alone. You just find out has been murdered by your brother, raped and killed her, but he's saying you did it and you are coercing him to take responsibility for it because you caught him trying to have sex with a dog. On top of everything going on, Floyd's life is crashing around him. And he is still trying to figure out what in the world is happening. He goes to trial in Jefferson County District Court in April of 2000, wearing a bulletproof vest under his clothes because he's getting death threats from the victim's family. Now, the prosecution contend that Floyd, he was in the middle of divorcing his wife. And, of course, they're doing like, oh, my God. When the police are interrogating him, they're doing all of this stuff to try to twist. Well, did you find her attractive? Well, she's a pretty girl. Oh, my God. Well, that's it. You did it. You did it. Even though we have all of this outlined from Tom. But if you can't think that this total crap show could get any worse, it does. So Tom testified and recounted Floyd's confession to the crime in Tom's eyes. Tom said that he drove up to Floyd's car and they were facing opposite directions with their windows rolled down. Both of the cars were running. Tom told the jury that Floyd put his head in his arms and confessed. So, okay, true crimers, you've got a man who is hard of hearing. Fungus has eaten away his eardrums, but they both drive up on each other's vehicles with the vehicles running. Floyd's head is in his arms and he is confessing and Tom was able to hear all of this and the jury is believing this. Floyd's defense attorney failed to confront Tom about the fact that Tom had a hearing problem. He didn't, the defense attorney did nothing about this. The defense attorney just totally let this by. I mean, Tom's hearing problem is so severe that he could not hear a normal conversation from more than a couple of feet away and had to be facing a speaker so he could read their lips. But the defense attorney did nothing about that. Tom and Floyd's father also testified and provided an alibi for Tom. And he just completely threw his own child under the bus. Their father, their father, who Floyd is named after, 
said that Tom was with him and his wife at an auction until 1 p.m. on Friday. And Camille disappeared and that when they got home at 10 p.m., Tom was asleep, a security alarm which would have gone off if anyone left the house during the night, and it didn't go off so he knew he was safe. Now, there was no forensic evidence that was presented that linked Floyd to the crime. No forensic evidence at all. And we're going to get into forensic evidence here later. The prosecution told the jury that the rape kit was negative, which we're going to find out is completely a lie. It didn't show that a male had been there. Another lie. Now, it does go into a man in a deer stand where the body was found, had heard screaming. However, he said he didn't hear any gunshots. Testimony at trial also made statements uh, by Floyd's two-year-old son, Cody, a two-year-old who implicated both Tom and Floyd. Floyd's wife, Heidi, also testified that she and the pastor's wife asked Cody, the two-year-old, what happened to Camille and Cody described Tom shooting her, wrapping her in a blanket and putting her in the dump. Eliciting that testimony, however, the defense allowed the prosecution to bring in testimony that a few days later, after Floyd's arrest, Cody's statements changed to daddy killed Camille. Floyd did not testify, although witnesses were called that testified that Floyd spent the day that Camille disappeared working on a dairy farm, and he didn't get home until around midnight. According to the testimony, Floyd then immediately began to search for Camille. His whereabouts were accounted for the morning of November 5th through November 6th of 1999. So they're able to account for where he is. He didn't feel the need to testify about it. He knew where he was. Now, I can imagine just a lot of it is your whole family is friggin' throwing you under the bus. How that had to make you feel. How betrayed you had to be at that time. Now, on April 28th, 2000, the jury convicts Floyd of first-degree murder, aggravated kidnapping, and aggravated indecent liberties with a child. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 16 years. Then, in 2004, after the Kansas Supreme Court upheld his convictions and sentence, a hearing was held on a motion for a new trial alleging that Floyd's attorney had provided a constitutionally inadequate defense at trial. But guess what? The motion was denied, and in 2007, the Kansas Supreme Court upheld the decision. So they're saying, yes. This was a jacked up case, but we're not going to let it go. The courts are all saying, yeah, gosh, you know, Floyd, this sucks for you, but now yeah, we're, we're not going to allow you to have a new trial. We're not going to allow all of this. So Floyd is going back and forth. The Innocence Project gets involved. Everybody is going back and forth, and Floyd is pushing for justice. Floyd isn't giving up until 3 p.m. on 2015. Everything changes for Floyd at 3 p.m. on November 9th, 2015, when Michael Partnog, a Walmart groundskeeper in Bonner Springs, Missouri, 
was blowing leaves in the parking lot when he notices a light blue Fiat with what appears to be a mannequin in the front seat. And all of us true crimers know it's never a mannequin. He goes closer and he notices the mannequin was a person with a bag over his head and the person wasn't breathing. Now, Jeff Wiseman of the Bonner Springs Police Department was the first officer on scene. The Fiat belongs to Thomas Edward Bledsoe, Floyd's brother. By this time, he's 41 years old and he had gone missing from his McLeod home eight days beforehand. Bledsoe's wallet and cell phone were laying next to his body along with a few dollar bills and a large red helium tank. His cell phone history indicated he had recently researched suicide methods and read articles about the murder of Camille. Shortly after 11 a.m. on November 1st, Bledsoe had walked into the Bonner Springs Walmart and bought a helium tank, envelopes, pens, and oven bags. They had seen this from CCTV footage. At some point in the following week, he had placed the bag over his head and asphyxiated himself. The helium had had an intoxicating effect over him and it limited his sense of suffocation. According to medical journals, this kind of gave him a feeling of euphoria. The pens and the envelopes, they served a much different purpose. They gave Tom the opportunity to clear his conscience before death, and in turn, it brought to a close this 16-year mystery, which wasn't really a mystery, but finally would grant Floyd the freedom he had been fighting for so long. Now, after being told by the Bonner Springs Fire Department that Bledsoe's car was safe to enter, because the canister had given a lot of the police department some pause, Detective Daniel Farr grabbed the three white envelopes from Bledsoe's dashboard, and he saw the first one was addressed to Bledsoe's wife. It's evidence, so he looked at it, and it read, I am sorry, I really loved you but I cannot go on. It's tearing me up inside. I know the Lord will take care of you. I hope you can forgive me, but if not, that's fine. I don't think God will forgive me for what I've done. Best wishes to you and your kids. Sorry, Tom B. And that best wishes is just kind of a kicker to me. It's just a line of disrespect, but those are my feelings because it's my podcast. The second envelope was addressed to Tom's parents, Floyd Sr. and Kathy Bledsoe. In it, he confesses to the murder of Arfman, a crime for which his brother, Floyd Jr., has spent six years behind bars without him doing a damn thing except lie to keep his brother there. It says, Dear Mom and Dad, I am sorry I have caused all this pain. 
Floyd is innocent. The C-A, C as in cat, made me lie, and he spells lie L-Y-E. It could be because of this hallucinatory um, of the helium, or it could be a Freudian slip. And they told them him to keep his mouth shut, Tom wrote, referring to the Jefferson County attorney. Please don't be upset with me. Please tell Floyd I am sorry. Love, Tom. It's interesting that he tells them to tell Floyd he's sorry. He doesn't write an envelope to Floyd. He never writes an envelope apologizing to Floyd, the person he lied about, the person he caused all of that pain to. He never once tells Floyd himself in a letter that he's sorry. Because the third envelope, it's just addressed to whomever cares. And it contained the longest letter in it. In it, Tom explains how he killed Arfman and why. It states, I sent an innocent man to prison. Now I am going to set things right. I killed Camille Arfman on November 5th, 1999. I had sex with her and I killed her. According to Bledsoe, he picked Arfman up at the trailer where she was living after she got home from school that day, and he took her to his parents' home where Tom was living at the time. At first, he states that she helped him do something, and he writes, Sorry, my mind is blank on what we did. Then we talked, and then the conversation got moved to sex, and she told me she's had sex before with whom I don't know. Then she asked me, and I said no. Then it happened so fast, I don't remember much. We had sex on my parents' bed. That's how my father's DNA got on her clothes. So that's an interesting point to the note. Because at first, he still doesn't want to come clean. And he mentions in this random note, that's how my father's DNA got on her clothes. Even though in court, there is no mention at all of the DNA. Now, according to Tom, the two were leaving the house when he asked Arfman to never discuss their sexual encounter. And he writes, that's when I found out she was 14 and I freaked out. So I drove up to the ditch where the family dumped trash and tried to convince her not to tell. Everything was happening so fast, I couldn't think. I went to my truck, and I got my 9mm gun that was behind my seat, pushed her to the ground, tried to scare her, but it failed. When the gun went off behind her head, it was an accident. I didn't mean to kill her. But then there's a space in the letter. Then Tom seems to finally realize that there's no reason to lie anymore. And he states, or he writes, I as well might go ahead and say it. I raped and murdered a 14-year-old girl. I tried telling the truth, but no one would listen. I was told to keep my mouth shut. It tore me up 
doing it. I would ask for forgiveness, but I know none will come. Not even from God. Floyd S. Bledsoe is an innocent man. Thomas E. Bledsoe is the guilty one. Tom then draws a simple map with what he said is the proof of the guilt, and it's the location where Arfman was killed, a detail that has eluded investigators for 16 years. They knew where she was drugged and buried, but they didn't know where exactly she was killed. And it was less than 20 yards from the ditch where she was found. Now within those 20 yards, detectives would find a nine millimeter shell casing. This is 16 years after she was killed. They still find a nine millimeter shell casing used in Camille's murder. Now later that month, Jefferson County detectives, after they find the casing buried in an inch of dirt in Oskaloosa, it was Tom Bledsoe's final words that seemed to solve Camille Arfman's murders. But there's still some questions that remain. Now we know Arfman, she wasn't accidentally killed by a confused man who had been her friend for several years and didn't know her age. He finally came forward with the truth. He raped and he killed her. But perhaps most importantly is how did Floyd come to be charged and convicted with her crime? There's a thousand pages of trial testimony, police reports, autopsy reports, notes, letters, and all of these other documents. But what's most interesting to me is in that letter, Tom makes a point of saying how his father's DNA got on her. So he knows, even though he sat in court and he testified, and he knows that never once was DNA brought up, never once was there anything more brought up to that, but he finds a point to mention that in that note. So there is so much more going on there. And before we move on, I want to make a point about something else. Let's go back to Noble talking about the screams he heard while in that deer stand. He talks about screams that he heard. And he goes out and he's confronted with dogs. He climbs into a tree and he wishes he would have killed those dogs and went forward. But when that happens... At around the same time, a 911 call comes on and they're told about a girl's screams in a completely different direction, in a completely different area. So my question is, was someone calling in because they actually heard screams? Was another crime happening at that time? Or was someone calling in because they wanted to throw police off in case someone else had heard those screams? That's something that stands out to me even after all of these years. But who really did it? 
Who really killed Camille? Was it Floyd? We know that's not the case by now. Was it his brother, Tom Bledsoe, who initially confessed in 1999 and then recants it? Did the killer act alone? Now, as we've gone through this case and we've discussed it ad nauseum, there's one name we haven't discussed and one name nobody has ever considered, but as the DNA is coming through, some amazing things have been found out. Last fall, when Floyd sees a report with the results of the newly tested DNA, he wasn't too surprised that the results showed his brother, Tom. But Floyd is shocked beyond words when he sees that a concentrated level of his father's DNA has been found on the socks of Camille. He tells Lawrence Journal World in an interview that just, and he does this interview only three weeks after he was released from prison. So his world is still just reeling. But, you know, he says that he is just shocked beyond words about these DNA results. And he says that it's something that he's still just trying to process and work through. Now, Floyd right now, after all of these years, he's 39 years old. He had been released from prison December 8th, following a hearing in Jefferson County District Court in which all the new evidence was discussed and after his brother had committed suicide and had finally admitted of all of the lies that his family had told, that his brother had told, and all of this had come to light, and the Midwest Innocence Project, and the post-conviction remedies at Kansas University, everything they had been doing to get him out. 39 years old, he is finally free in a sense. Because are you ever truly free after going through so much betrayal and pain. But after all of these years, the Midwest Innocence Project had taken on the case and they paid to have the DNA from the original murder investigation tested. And Kirk Vernon, the chief detective for the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office, he had testified December 8th at that hearing that his agency and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation were re-examining the murder case. They just, they wanna make sure that there aren't any stones out there that haven't been uncovered. And that's when they had found out that his father's DNA had been found. And it's already been very, very difficult for Floyd because I mean, all of this had really been unraveling due to his brother's suicide. And I can imagine the mixed emotions Floyd would be feeling because his brother literally had put him in prison with lies. So you, you've got to be feeling so much. I mean, in the suicide letters, Tom, who was 41 at the time, he confessed to killing Camille Arthman, who was the sister of Floyd's wife at the time, 
Arfman, who had, had been shot once in the back of the head and three times in the chest after she had been sexually assaulted. But during the trial in 1990, experts testified Arfman was killed at an unknown location and then dragged by her feet to a trash dump on the property located by Floyd's father. And in one of the suicide letters, Tom, who still lived with his parents near the dump at the time of the murder, wrote that he and the girl had sex on his father's bed. And so Floyd believed that that's how his father's DNA consisting of skin cells must have gotten on her socks. But Herrig, that's, that's not what they're thinking. They're thinking that that chance of it happening that way are very slim. And they said that they did talk to the KBI lab about that. And they said it's a very slim possibility, to be very honest, in this interview with the journal. And they said, but you can't say that that's not how it happened because there, there is a possibility of it happening that way. Now, Alice Craig, who is Floyd's attorney and a professor with the Innocence Project agreed. It's not impossible, but it's also very unlikely, especially with the level of DNA. Now, the match is not going to be just from incidental contact. Now, you gotta take this into account. Floyd is Floyd, Floyd Bledsoe, who is finally out of prison, is Floyd Bledsoe Jr. The DNA that's been found is from Floyd Bledsoe Sr. This case just keeps exploding so many landmines. Now, the DNA evidence is overwhelming, authorities have said. The odds that the DNA found on the socks does not belong to the father are one in 20 sextillion. The father of Floyd Bledsoe and the mother, Catherine Bledsoe, they now live in Texas. And this interview is from Journal World and they have attempted to reach the couple. The Associated Press has said that the story in the last weeks that a reporter contacted Catherine Bledsoe, who had no comment, and her husband did not respond to a message seeking an interview. So far, the father has not been charged with any crime, and detectives talked to him and his wife about the case in November when they returned to Kansas to bury their son, Tom. But they wouldn't offer anything. And Floyd met with Journal World reporter and a photographer in a small office at the Innocence Project located at Kansas University's law school. They talked about his time in prison. And he did state that his time in prison was in the beginning extremely hard. Um, and I can't even imagine. You're not only going to prison, it's your family who put you there. Those people who raised you, your own brother. I don't know what their family life had to have been. I don't know if they were extremely close. And he doesn't talk about what his childhood was like much. But I, I can't even imagine that. 
Now, even though Floyd was innocent, there was no one to tell because from a prisoner's perspective, who are you going to tell? Everybody in prison says they're innocent. It's not like you can show up to the governor's door and say, hey, I need your help. I'm an innocent man in prison. They all say they're innocent. But he did say that three inmates took him under their wing and explained to him the ways to adjust to prison society. So he said the first hundred days, it's crazy. You walk into prison and you have nothing. You have a laundry bag with a towel, socks, and just a little bit of stuff in it. But doing the time is even harder. I mean, you're sitting there and the days, they're long and time just adds up. You have to just click along. And the waiting is the worst. You have to learn to occupy your time. You have to pick up hobbies. You learn to read. The three inmate friends taught him how to avoid becoming homesick. They had explained to him the importance of when you get pictures from home to not just sit there and stare at them day in and day out because that makes your time longer because all you do is sit there and think about the time you're not with them. The time you wish you were there. You can't function in two worlds. So Floyd said he spent a lot of time just trying to make sense of what happened to him. And I don't know how he did that. He said it was very frustrating to him. It goes back to him just saying over and over, what wasn't me? It wasn't me. And you can't live there. You can't, if, if you're going to be in that mindset, you might as well end your life because you can't live that way because you know it's not you, but you can't live your life like that. All you can do, Floyd says, is grasp on and hope that the right person will listen and take up your cause. Floyd had been in prison only a couple of years when he lost his direct appeal to the Kansas Supreme Court. And just before that decision came down, he said he had started what he calls his road to forgiveness and had attended what uh, prisons call their inner healing seminars. And so he decided, you know what, I'm stuck here. There's nothing I can do. I'm just going to go and forgive everybody, which I got to tell you, I couldn't do that. His parents came to visit him the following Saturday, and he decided to start his forgiveness plan with them. When he walked into the visitation room, he said he thought he was happy, but his mother asked him why he seemed so gloomy. Why are you looking so sad? Normally, you're happy and smiling and happy to see us. And Floyd said he pointed out that he had lost his appeal and he'd be spending the rest of his life in prison. And she was like, why, I know that, we saw it in the paper. And it upset Floyd that she seemed to make light of the court decision and decided it was not the right time to forgive them. So she saw that her own child was no longer allowed any appeals and she made just light of it. And, you know, he's going through this whole forgiveness thing and why the frick should you and, and I'm glad he chose, you know what? I'm not going to forgive you. 
why, why am I forgiving you? You could care less about me. And that's when he stood up and was like, don't write me. Don't call me. Don't come visit me. I've got some stuff I've got to work out. And he walked out of that visiting room, tears running down his face. And he was mad at God and he was mad at everybody. And he said that day is one of the days that he learned forgiveness doesn't free the offender from from what they've done. Finally, the DNA results came in last fall. After seeing the results connecting the DNA to his father, he remembered how his father and mother would never discuss the murder with him or respond to questions he asked about it. They never said they were sorry for what happened to him. The whole thing was like a pink elephant. And I like how he says that. It's not like a big elephant in the room. It's a pink elephant in the middle of the room. They just never talked about the situation. Floyd says he hasn't spoken with his parents since he saw the report, and they have not tried to contact him even when they were in Kansas for his brother's funeral. He said that for him, the findings regarding his father's DNA leave only one thought. You walk away thinking he assisted in some fashion. Thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast. And I wanted to remind you guys that there is the book Four Shots in Oski covered by Justin Weingert. It was, it started out as a piece that he was writing for the Topeka Capital Journal, which is a local newspaper. And he had covered it, which it, like I said, it was a multiple piece paper where it was talking about the corruption surrounding this case. And it ended up evolving into a book, which was absolutely incredible. But I also wanted to cover this case because I've heard several other podcasts covering it. And it seemed that 14-year-old Camille Arfman, the victim in this case, she kind of gets little airtime. She, she doesn't get discussed a lot. And we couldn't find a lot about Camille, but we wanted to make sure we did talk about Camille Arfman. Now, when this case occurred, one of the things we wondered about is how Tom Bledsoe got Camille into his vehicle. Did he use the gun he had with him to coerce Camille into the vehicle? Because Tom Bledsoe is kind of an awkward guy. I mean, he wasn't known for being the most socially inept, most socially apt guy. So I couldn't see him smooth talking Camille into the vehicle. Her books were in the trailer, her coat was there, and she went with him. And I do wonder about, was she terrified when she went with him and how he got her back to his parents' home? We also want to discuss the fact of his father's DNA, so much of it being found on Camille's body. I hope law enforcement continues just because Tom has confessed in this case. I don't want them to just neatly wrap it up in a bow and say, okay, Floyd Sr. is an older guy. We're just going to stop this case here and stop. Floyd Jr. did a long time in prison for a case that he did not commit and his father would come visit him there knowing the truth the whole time 
There is pure evil in that behavior. And people talk, and I, I've seen several people in discussing this case about how the parents acted on how his brother acted. And, you know, people just kind of discuss and dwell on this. And until you've been in a family dynamic about uh, that is kind of like this, I don't think you can truly understand. And if you can indulge me for just a few moments... I want to talk a little bit about my upbringing. If you don't want to hear about this, please feel free to stop this recording right here and now. You don't have to listen. And again, those secrets can just stay with me and I could be talking to dead space. That's fine with me. But in my childhood, my childhood, I felt a lot of times that I was the outcast of this huge family. And I never understood why, because even from a little kid, I never felt like I belonged there. I know it's my family, but I never felt like I belonged. To the point of my wedding day, now I was married more than once, but my first wedding to my childhood sweetheart, we went through the rehearsal because my parents are deaf and I knew it was going to be difficult for them. And my dad was supposed to give me away. So we went through signals and everything so he would know how to go through things and what to do. But the day of my wedding, we wait and we wait and they never show up. When we finally get a hold of him, they had decided for their own reasons not to come to my wedding. They had never arrived for any major occasions for the most part, throughout my life. When I left home, my family had destroyed any and all pictures, documents, anything related to me. I have no pictures. I have nothing from my childhood, except whenever I see yearbook photos or anything like that sh shared online, or a few things that one of my brothers might have that he decides to share with me. I have nothing from my childhood. Even most of my memories are repressed that my therapist says are probably that way for good reason. And I can dig them up when I feel like I am ready. And over 50 years, I still don't feel ready. So I don't know if I ever will. And people wonder how parents can do this. Well, if a parent is trying to save his own skin in the game, as well as his son, I have seen evil a lot of times and I can see this happening. What really blows my mind is he named Floyd after himself, his own namesake, and he totally shat all over him. That just blows my mind. Now, we are still working on the same cases that we've discussed in the past. We work every day on the case of Krista Martin, my childhood neighbor and friend. But we have seen some developments with the Wichita Police Department. And in those developments, we think that there may be something coming soon. Our fingers are crossed. And we're hoping every day that we have something to share with you. We have also been closely monitoring the situation in Oklahoma. There was a horrific 
multiple person homicide suicide there and we have been researching that case quite a bit and the connections it could have to other possible cases and we will have a podcast related to that case here in the near future we are also going to be working on the case of dakota a Patton. he's a 23 year old male he's five foot one and weighs about 230 pounds he has brown hair blue eyes and facial hair he was last seen the april the evening of april 25th in parsons kansas he was likely wearing blue jeans a gray sweatshirt and boots he was reported missing on april 27th his vehicle was located in an abandoned field in rural labette county kbi agents believe Patton may have last been in an area walking along the Neosho River between 20th Road and Wallace Road. It's around the 60th and Wallace Road, and they suspect foul play in his disappearance. They recently have asked hunters and other people to kind of look around that area. So we've decided we want to help. As you know, we have equipment, we have dogs but we can't get out to that area until May 20th. So we're asking if any of our listeners or anybody else wants to get together with us. Now, if you do have dogs you want to bring, they must be certified search or cadaver dogs, and they must be able to show verification that they have updated vaccinations. But if you just wanna come yourself to assist, please send us a direct message on any of our social media platforms on TikTok, uh, Facebook, YouTube, and we'll help coordinate a place that we can all meet together and we can do a search on public properties only. We have put a message out there on our Facebook page um, where we have tagged local news media. We have tagged the KBI and the local sheriff's department, letting them know about our intentions for that date. So keep tuned with that. We are still working with the Fasica Tadelt case with his father, and we have contacted the Attorney General of Missouri. Thank you again so much for listening to our podcast. If you have any cases that you are interested in having covered, or if you are interested in coming on the podcast, send us a direct message, respond to us on Spotify, respond to us on any of our social media platforms. We would love to visit with you. Shoot us a message and we'll shoot you one back. Thanks a lot for listening. Take care.